from across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you. Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. Uh, well, thanks very much indeed, Bill, for that introduction. You had already then had a slight summary of what I'm uh, <laughs> going to be talking about, which is very, is, is very good. Um, I am um, actually going to be talking about all three aircraft, um, human-powered aircraft. This is Aerocycle 3, um, and, and I'm going to go through the evolving process of the whole thing. Um, I'm afraid for the engineers here, there aren't going to be a lot of graphs um, we did do a lot of crafts, I can assure you, but sort of sorting out all the information for a lecture is, is, is quite a lot. So quite a lot of it's dependent upon slides, and it's a description of the, the structure, it's a dis- description of how we made decisions, and Bill's right, a lot of the decisions were made uh, not from um, ab initio cal- or, or, or base calculations, they were made by looking at other aircraft and seeing in what way um, I reckoned that I could improve on what those other aircraft uh, did. Because I think this whole human-powered aircraft thing has now got to a point where, um, where we are evolving from one to the other, and each step we need to see the next design with, with, with one or two features that are different and better to previous designs. Uh, my tutor at Imperial College was Frank Irving of, uh, of glider design fame and he used to say to me that uh, in any new design John he was talking about the optica here he said any new design you want to have three new features if you've got less than three new features it's probably not worth doing a new design anyway and if you have more than three new features the chances are that the technical aspects of what you're trying to do will defeat you um, that lesson is a little bit going to come out in, in tonight's um, talk, I think. Uh, it wasn't until after I'd agreed to give the talk that I realised that it is actually exactly 40 years, uh, 19, 1977, that the uh, Kramer Figure of Eight prize was, was won by Paul McCready and, and his team, and uh, therefore it seemed an appropriate title for the lecture, although it's not actually, the lecture isn't actually about the Kramer Prizes, because really um, this whole movement splits into different phases. There was, there was one or two efforts before the war, uh, and I'm not sure that any of them actually flew. Then in the 1960s, um, we had uh, tremendous efforts in, in the UK, um, particularly four teams that I'll mention. I haven't got pictures of them tonight, but there's Sunpack from Southampton University. There was Puffin that came from Hatfield, later went to Liverpool. There was the Toucan, which was the only two-seater human-powered aircraft, as far as I know. It's the only one I know about. That came from Radlett, uh, which, of course, was Hanley Page at that time. And then Jupiter which was uh, begun by um, Chris Roper, who's con- still secretary um, of, of uh, the Aeronautical Society group. I'm not quite sure where Jupiter came from. It was perhaps just Chris's idea that he wanted to do it. Um, and, of course, also, um, as Bill Brooks has said, it's great that Derek Piggott is here tonight. 
He did, was the first flight in Sumpak, and the, um, the records say that he flew 650 meters. Um, we're now, of course, flying 1,000 meters or a bit more, which is more or less the length of the runway at Lasham or at Sywell. So at the moment, unless we go round in circles, we can't really, uh, we can't really fly um, more than that. So where did I start with my ideas? Well, I was aware of those, those four aircraft, plus in, I should have mentioned the one or two aircraft in Japan as well, um, the, the Linnet, um, the Stork A, I think, is Japan. Other people here would know better than me. Um, but essentially, it was in 19... Well, leading up to 1977, and if I can click onto the um, first frame... Oh, that by... Did I say that? Yeah, that is Aerocycle 3. That won the, uh, won the Icarus Cup this summer. I'll be saying more about that later on. So here we are, 1977. Uh, there was the Condor 1 on the top left, leading on to the Condor 2, or Gossamer Condor, which was the aircraft that won the uh, figure of eight. And that led, led on to, a couple of years later, the Gossamer Albatross, still, as you see, very much uh, with the same design in mind, um, that uh, crossed, the, crossed the channel. Now, what was particularly difficult, different about these aircraft, um, apart from the fact that they're all canards, and uh, you'll, you, as, as you probably know, that my first efforts were at canards, uh, the, the big difference was that they had enormous wings and they were tremendously light. And they didn't fly all that fast. And that meant uh, that, meant that you could have a lot of rigging wires and a lot of rigging wires meant that you didn't need to have much structure, hence keeping the weight down. And that was, the, that was really the breakthrough that was completely different to what had gone before. Um, when I started doing this project, um, I, uh, I had in mind the, the schools competition that had been um, uh, launched by the society... And I felt that this configura configuration would be good as a sort of basic um, aircraft for a school's competition. Um, I didn't actually get it right uh, because my aircraft, my first aircraft was a canard, uh, but I wanted to do away with the rigging was. I wanted it to be able to fly in stronger wind conditions and uh, it actually came out too, too heavy. So that was, that was sort of the thought behind my, my first design, the Canard. Um, then later on, um, I was also influenced by the Daedalus, which came 10 years later. This was an MIT project. Um, again, very, very light wing loading compared to those early aircraft. Um, and uh, this, this is the aircraft that flew the, the longest that any human-powered aircraft uh, has ever flown, 116 kilometers, uh, the Santorini flight. Uh, leading on to later ideas, more recent aircraft that have... And these are the aircraft that have all influenced me, which is why I'm showing these pictures. Um, at the top left, we have the... 
bionic bat, uh, which was built for the speed competition, is not actually... Well, it is a human-powered aircraft, but it was a stored energy aircraft because the rules under that competition were that you could store energy, I think, for 10 minutes before, before starting. But more interesting, really, to me, um, was, was Velair and Airglow down the bottom. And these are, these are what I would say are evolving into what we see as the sort of the modern human-powered aircraft. Uh, I'm not quite sure whether Velair is still flying. Uh, Airglow is very much still flying, was about to fly again because it actually um, met with an accident last year and wasn't in the Icarus Cup. Um, my great thing is, can I beat Airglow Air in, uh, in the Icarus Cup th this year? Um, the, you, I'll be saying later why, why we haven't actually um, been able to meet in competition later. Uh, uh, later on, I'll be able to tell you about that. Um, a, a quick table. I'm not going to go through all these, um, but just uh, highlighted is the, um, if I can make this work, the Condor 2 and the Albatross that you've seen, um, seen pictures Look at the wing area, particularly 66, 46, um, compared to the my latest one, 18 square meters. This is Airglow is 22 square meters. Great big aeroplanes, very light, and very light wing loading. Look at these wing loadings of of the, that's the first figure of eight. That wing loading compared to the wing loadings of Sunpack and Puffin. And this was, the, this was the key to success. Um, so all this, this, this was where my, my initial research was. All this led on to my first design, which was, um, which was the Canard Aerocycle number one. As I say, it was designed with the school's competition in mind, that meant it only had an 18-metre wingspan because that was a restriction of the school's competition. Uh, there's not a lot of carbon fibre in it. Um, mo most, of the, uh, most of it's aluminium tube. The, 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 the fuselage structure here um, is an aluminium tube frame, um, an aluminium boom, and... Um, and the, the, the wing structure is, is styrofoam with a certain amount of carbon fibre in the wing that I'll be going on to, to describe. Um, the, uh, the problem with this aircraft, I'm thinking just back to the previous slide, was that it was heavy. Uh, here's aerocycle number one, 44 kilograms uh, compared to... Um, the Condor 3124. And really, with a human-powered aircraft, uh, we've got to be looking at something not a lot more than 30, certainly less than 40 empty weight. Um, this, that was the original Aerocycle 1 that I've just shown the, the slide of. Um, this here is, is we, ex we extended the wingtips uh, by 3 metres and the weight went up. In some ways, it did fly better with the extended wingtips. By that stage, we'd given up trying to stick to the, the rules of the school competition, um, but, the, but the weight had gone up. 
Um, the reason, incidentally, that we did do that wing extension was because um, the, uh, the, the wing of the 80-metre glider, uh, to keep the weight down, the spar londrons finished about a metre and a half um, before the tip. Now, that was all right for the flight loads. The spar was quite strong enough in, in, in flight, but as soon as we did, uh, as soon as the wing touched and the aircraft ground looped, which happens to every single human-powered aircraft, uh, the wing tip fell off on the side that went down. So the wing tip that fell off, uh, we thought, well, w we might as well rebuild the wing a, a bit longer and uh, see if we can get it to fly better. Uh, the wing section of Aerocycle number one, the canard, was the Lissamon section. This is the same had been used on the, on the Condor. Um, it, is, um, it is a relatively thin section. It's 11.5% uh, thickness to cord ratio. The, um, th this, this, uh, th this thickness, it means if you're dependent upon a spar as opposed to uh, a lot of flying wires, and I, I, I wanted to get rid of the con con concept of so many flying wires, um, it's, not, it's not a desperately thick section in terms of getting the, the strength that is needed. Now, the features that... Uh, this comes on, really, to the, to the first new feature... Um, in my design. Now, those that are familiar with the design of human-powered aircraft, and I won't go back to the previous drawings, but most human-powered aircraft have a main spar, which is a tube, typically uh, a carbon fibre tube these days. Um, the early ones uh, would have had aluminium tubes. In fact, I think the Condor may have had an aluminium tube um, that was thinned down uh, um, along its length uh, by chemical etching. I've gone for this concept of what I re regard more like a, a conventional aircraft in which you have a main spar at this position here and you've got a longeron at the top and longeron at the, at the bottom with a web in between. Uh, such a spar <clears throat> has uh, no torsional strength so you then need a torsion box. And the torsion box on this design uh, goes, from, uh, goes around the leading edge, which is fairly, it's fairly sort of standard aircraft practice. Um, I did extend the top skin. The top skin uh, runs back to here, but that, that part of it uh, wasn't part of the torsion box. Um, the... the, um, the uh, it's, it's then um, mylar skin, uh, the clear mylar skin from, uh, from that point back. Um, I learnt, we learnt on this wing, we learnt actually how to build human-powered aircraft wings. Um, the spar was one feature that we were doing differently. The other feature that, um, that we did differently was the ribs. Conventionally, with a human-powered aircraft, you go for fairly close spacing of ribs. All those other designs I've mentioned would have ribs at um, maybe 
somewhere between 250 and 3 millimetres, uh, 300 millimetres spacing. That's, of, you know, sort of 8 inches to a foot. Uh, I reckon that I could save weight by going for heavier ribs uh, and uh, lightening them. Now, these ribs are... Um, you can see there's a sort of truss structure in here, and they were machined out on a CNC um, router, uh, machined out both sides, so the ribs are a sort of I-beam um, with a, with a, a five-millimeter web in the middle, and the top and bottom are um, about 35 millimeters wide. So my ribs were, li- were heavier than conventional, but were far, far, far less of them. What I hadn't really worked out um, was that the trailing edge was going to become a problem with this design. And this was the biggest problem because the trailing edge, quite a thin part of the wing, has to span uh, 750 millimetres. You put the mylar covering on and you shrink the mylar and the trailing edge isn't strong enough. You then have to... Uh, strengthen the trailing edge in some way and which we, we, we did with carbon fibre um, but the problem is that by the time you've done all that um, you haven't actually saved any weight and having built this wing we did then go through probably what I should have done before we did get, then go through a fairly detailed analysis and uh, did actually prove to ourselves that we were never going to get this construction as, as, as light as the, as the multi-rib version. Um, the, the leading edge by the, of this wing is 55 millimeter styrofoam, uh, not with any covering. There's no glass fibre or anything on the outside. Strong enough for the air loads... Um, not quite strong enough when somebody stands up underneath the wing and their head goes straight through the skin, as happened to us on at least one occasion. Um, and incidentally, the other thing I'll just point out on this is, because these are all features that you'll see are different when I come on to describe Aerocycle 2 and 3, uh, the spar was at 28% cord, which is about what one would do on a conventional aircraft. Uh, but we did put this, this aircraft together, and there's Aerocycle number one, being the, the wing being put together. We built a jig out of MDF. The MDF is all CNC routed, um, and it, the, the jig, if you could see, basically just holds the, holds the leading edge plus the, 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 the bit of free skin behind the, behind the spar, which is, which is here. Um, the, so you're, you're building the wing downwards like that. You put, you put the ribs in, and then you put the, the spar on, and we had these clamps to clamp the spar down onto the ribs. Now, one problem we had with this was that the ribs, although theoretically they should all go down to the same point, because you get slight variations on the, on the leading edge shape, which incidentally had been formed over a, a hot tube with hair dryers. This is conventional. I mean, if you read the book about Aslam, there's a description of lots of students with hair dryers heating up your styrofoam and forming it over. But you do get slight variations, and that means that the ribs don't all go down to the same point, which actually means it's quite difficult to glue the spar in place. 
That's one lesson we learnt on this wing, um, that when we came on to Aerocycle 2, we purposely made the ribs over length, and then we, we, we hot-wired all the ribs down to be level uh, once, they were, once they were glued in. So on this one, the, 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 the jig just glues, the, d d does the leading edge, and then the trailing edge of the Lissaman section uh, is just done on a flat bench. Um, it was done, I think this is actually, this slide that I found is actually the, the I mentioned a wing had to be repaired. This is actually the repair being, being, being done, but the actual leading edge, the trailing edge was put on in a, in a very similar way. Um, how are we doing? Uh, we had to build a fuselage. Now, the, the fuselage was pretty complicated. It's a, the fuselage is, is this aluminium um, structure that you see here, three-dimensional structure, uh, so quite thin tubes. I mean, typically half-inch or, or five-eighths uh, aluminium tubes. Um, I thought it was going to be easy to build. Actually, it was quite difficult. We had to build this quite sophisticated jig that was all built in MDF. That's a photograph of the jig behind there. Um, this, this CAD picture of the jig only actually shows the bottom part. I put the CAD picture upright so that you can actually visualise the fuselage. That, that is where the pilot sits there. That is the boom, so that would go forward. Um, that's the pedals. Um, that's the bracket that holds the wheel on, so the wheel goes in there. Um, and the, the propeller goes there, on just behind that member. The propeller shaft going forward to there, to a sprocket, uh, with a chain coming down to um, sprockets on this member here, and on down to the, um, to the pedals, which are, as I say, here. There's not time to, tonight to discuss the, the powertrain on that aircraft. Um, we had quite a lot of problems with it. Uh, so, as I say, that's why I put that drawing that way around, but in fact, um, that jig um, lies on here. And then there's a whole other bit on top that you can see. So that's like a bit round here on that drawing, um, that holds all the top members. Um, this was all uh, CNC'd. It's not glued at all. It was all done with, um, with tangs going into sockets and pegs going into the tangs. So the whole jig, it didn't need to be set because you just, you just put the whole jig together and it was designed so that it, it could only go, go together right. And the only thing you had to do then was to make sure it wasn't twisted which was uh, fairly easy to do. Uh, we also had to do a canard. There's the canard. I think that's actually possibly the second canard we did. The, the canard, um, as you'll see in a second from the, uh, the photograph of it flying, is, the, is, is, is free to rotate. My idea was the, uh, the, the, the canard would float and um, it, it, the, the directional control would be with the canard moving laterally and a lift with the canard moving the other way. Um, and this was done with tabs on here to control the canard. Um, I should have said, actually, earlier on, that one of the reasons for going with the canard 
was that I reckoned at that stage that a canard was going to be easier to get round um, a turn because the, the original uh, figure of eight, Condor, had, had been designed to go round corners and I wanted this aircraft to go round corners and I thought that a conventional aircraft probably wouldn't. Um, I think I've probably been proved wrong now. But there we are. It did actually fly. Um, you can see um, this on this occasion, we did actually have an electric motor on it, um, largely because we never actually sorted out the powertrain. And for a long time, if the pilot put full load onto the pedals, um, we had problems. The chain came off. Of, I mean, it, it was an absolute nightmare. So that's why we fitted the electric motor, so we could at least test, test the aircraft. Um, there we are. It is flying. It is off the ground. It did get off the ground a number of times. You can see the, the, uh, quite a lot of load on the canard, uh, the boom. You can see the angle of the boom there bending. Um, but it, we never got the stability of the canard sorted out. Uh, if I go on. So it was at that point uh, that I decided um, that that was the aircraft that went in for the first Icarus Cup in 2012. And it was, it was a bit depressing in a way that, you know, other people were there, Betterfly was there, Airglow were there, and they were having flights. And there we were sort of off on the side um, trying to make this thing trying to make this thing fly and just about um, managing to get off the ground if we were lucky and it being pretty unstable when it was off the ground. Um, that was all rather depressing. Um, for some reason, and I'm not quite sure what it was now, I decided that what we needed to do was build another one with a, a, a different wing section and so we set about aerocycle number two uh, I should have mentioned this aircraft has a, a, parallel, a parallel wing, which was probably one of the reasons why it was inefficient and unnecessarily heavy. We did actually design tapered outer panels, and it was at that point that I thought, well, why am I doing this? Why am I building new outer panels when really what I ought to be doing is building a new wing? So I looked at those other aircraft that you uh, saw earlier on in the talk, particularly Velair and Airglow, and I looked at their wings and I plotted um, various different, um, various different um, parameters against those aircraft. Now one of the things was that I reckon you need, you need the taper to match pretty closely to um, an ellipse, so this up here was the final wing. That's, that's an elliptical distribution there. This is the actual wing that we built. I decided to go for um, Vortman section, not the Lissaman section. Um, I will, um, the next slide, be showing you cross-sections of that and, and going through that. Um, we went for, I went for um, a cord of 960 and 420 of the tip and an area of 18.25. Most of these pictures where I was actually comparing um, other aircraft, Muscular, Airglow, Velair, I was comparing their wings with what I was intending to do. Um, and that, the, all those drawings there, this set here, 
And it was actually at that point that I decided that I'd cut the wing area down just a bit too much. So I then, we finally built it with it just slightly more, with 960 uh, cord at the root compared to 920 for all these pictures. Really, I was really looking at Velair and Airglow. I reckoned, I reckoned Airglow's wing was slightly bigger than it needed to be. I thought Velair's wing was pretty tight. So uh, my, my wing on Aerocycle number two was in between the two. Now, uh, if I just go on to look at the, the Vortman wing section, um, this is how we built, built the wing. Uh, again, uh, I, I was very happy with my spa design. So again, we've got um, styrofoam uh, shear web, this time with carbon fibre tubes, top and bottom. Uh, we've also got a carbon fibre tube um, at the leading edge, and we've got another carbon fibre tube in there. And that is the, the joint, the mid-span joint, that's where the mid-span joints come. The, 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 the top and bottom main spar and pins in the leading edge and at this point. There's no connection at the joint um, after that point. Um, you might think the, uh, the structure looks a bit strange. Well, there's a reason for it all. In, in the leading edge, uh, I went for ribs at 260 spacing. I couldn't really quite make up my mind whether to go for 250 or 300, again, by looking at what other people had done. Um, I related it to our skin panels. The skin goes from here, and I'll be describing how we made the skin a bit later, the skin from here right round to here. Um, the skins are come 10 foot by 4 foot. Uh, that's near enough 3 metres by 1.2 metres. And um, basically that's what designed the, the length of the, the, the panels to, to use a full length of the, the material. A forward of the spar... We've got ribs that are uh, 5.5mm styrofoam. And the reason for the lightning holes being done like this is that this gives you more than adequate glue area between the rib and the skin. And the glue is what weighs, not the material itself. And, and we've found incredibly important to keep down the amount of glue. Um, and, and this made it easier to do, rather than actually leaving patches of glue out, which would have been quite difficult, this was an easy way of doing it. Um, a few more lightning holes in the middle. I think there's actually a lightning hole missing in that drawing, because I'm pretty sure there's another one there. But again, um, you know, with the lightning there, ending in this panel here, that you'll see a bit later on what that panel looks like. And then the unsupported part, the, the mylar part of the wing, is on the top, just from there back, and on the bottom it's rather longer from there to there. So this, uh, this truss-like structure in, uh, in styrofoam, and these ribs after this, the, these aft ribs are 9mm uh, styrofoam. Um, I did do actually quite a lot of calculations on um, degree of washout because basically if you have a tapered wing you do need some washout uh, and I reckon that one degree uh, was about right. Uh, there's also the root panel uh, is, is bigger, you'll see that again a bit later, um, 
the, the root panel, is, it, it, the, the core to this is 960. This, I can't remember, I think it's about 1.2 meters. Uh, and the root panel is skinned all over. So the root panel has a, a skin um, running the other way. And that also has washout to reduce the, um, the instance straight in front of the propeller, which I think probably does help the flow through the propeller, but I'm not quite, not completely certain about that. The, the actual, the, the spar, the, the reason for this comment here is that the, um, originally I was going to have a three degrees of set on the wing with a spar vertical, so that meant that there was a, a three degree, this, this angle there is actually 93 degrees, um, subsequently decided to go for a five degrees incidence on the ground, so the spar is in fact uh, raked back by, uh, by two degrees. Um, this was obviously all done on, on CAD to get the, get the taper. I haven't really got time to go into that. Just in terms of the thickness of the section, this here, this root section and all the inboard panel is a 16% section, leaving much more room for structural strength. And also the spar is at 40% cord, a lot further back than on the canard. On the Lissaman section, that wouldn't have been possible because the Lissaman section is tapering um, by 40% by 40, 40 cord, but much better. I mean, quite a lot behind the aerodynamic centre, um, but these sections have got quite a high pitching moment, um, therefore actually having the spar fairly far back um, is, is good. And the torsion box is this complete box, and I'll show you some graphs later on, makes it all very stiff. Um, it ran down to... Uh, um, a 14% section at the outer panel, and then the right at the tip, it runs down to a 12% section. Um, I'm not quite sure why I put this one in, but it just shows the positions of the... Uh, th that's where the main spar pins are. There's a gap in the middle. Um, that's the mid-span joint, 4.3 metres. The outer joint at 10.045 and the, um, the outer face of the tip at 11.46. Um, uh, so the span is just fractionally less than 23 metres. Actually, on Aerocycle 2, the span was 23 metres, and uh, later on you'll find out how we fitted this wing to Aerocycle 3, and it was fitted slightly differently, and so um, it was slightly less span. We had to do quite a lot of testing. Uh, the carbon fibre... Um, the carbon fibre uh, laundrums, uh, that's a typical one there. You can see these afterwards. We had to get the, the lug loads sorted out. The lugs are typically done with a, with a rod end, or some, some of them, the mid-span joint is just two that go in together with a pin through, and at the root end it's a, it's a rod end that goes into this. Uh, we tested these. You can see how that one's come off. Um, that one, I think, probably hasn't been tested. We won't look at these afterwards. Um, that's one where um, uh, we tested, and you can see the, um, that, 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 that the aluminium was actually un unbonded from the uh, carbon fibre there. We did find that these ends had to be very accurately matched to the carbon. Uh, we started off um, having great big thick ends to make sure that they didn't, um, the ends didn't break. And uh, the, the, the glue went prematurely, uh, the, the resin went prematurely. And we realized that actually that's, you, you, you've got to match the, uh, 
the strain of the end fittings to the carbon. Otherwise, you get stress concentrations on the carbon. That was the reason for that. Um, uh, we also tested um, shear panels. Um, I bought one of these to, for you to see. You can barely see that that item, you welcome to have a look at this afterwards, you can barely see that it's gone. There's a dotted line where it's gone, um, but it has actually. You have to catch the light, and you can see the styrofoam has, has, has failed along that line. Um, so that's how we did the shear samples. At this stage, um, the plan was to, to basically put a glass fibre skin on, on the shear panel, um, typically at 45 degrees, and we, te we tested panels like that. And then I realised that it was actually much better to use carbon, and um, I haven't got any pictures of that on the testing. I'm not sure we even tested the carbon because I did calculations and decided it was going to work, but you'll see that in a minute. Probably time is going on. Um, right, so that leads on to um, making up a spar, and that... that Incidentally, is typically a bit of a bit of spar um, made for test purposes. Um, this, um, the here's the here's the carbon here's the carbon uh, glued to the styrofoam web. Uh, the carbon is uh, 14 millimeters by one millimeter wall. We actually bought the styrofoam to exactly match the the carbon and um, and. Um, and formed, formed uh, you know, a nice joint there. This was, again, something we'd learned on Aerocycle 1. Aerocycle 1 just had glue filling the joint, which is heavy, um, and we had to avoid that. Um, but for the shear, uh, I realised that what was needed was um, carbon fibre uh, like a warren girder. And here is the carbon fibre being, being put on. Um, it's, it's in effect filament winding, but very, very manual. It was done with, um, I, I was there lead, lead, leading the carbon fibre toes on, uh, one person at one end, one person at the other, and literally rotating the spar around and moving up and down. And if you think about it, you have to, go, you have to do four passes um, to get a, uh, a, a, a complete Warren girder. And there's the machine we had for um, putting the resin onto the carbon toe, um, there was a lot of resin everywhere, not necessarily on the spar itself, <laughs> uh, most of it on me. Um, uh, that, that then, uh, once that's finished, that then goes in a bag. You can see that one um, is with, with, the, with the toes finished. It's a complete Warren girder there. Uh, very, very thin um, plastic film uh, on it. And if I go on to the next slide... Uh, fairly conventional stuff, a bleed cloth on top of the plastic film. Plastic film made, meant that the epoxy did not stick to the bleed cloth, the reason for that, uh, into a vacuum bag, vacuum, and, um, and that's how that was done. And here we go with the, uh, with the finished spa, um, with, the, with, that all, with that cured. The final stage of making the spa is that the spa was intentionally made a slightly undersized because we wanted to get a good joint between the spa and the skin. So the final stage was, was bonding a, 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 a formed piece of styrofoam onto the upper and lower edges of the spa. Uh, that was intentionally oversized. 
and that was then afterwards machined down, uh, which gave you the exact spar size, and also where the skin isn't quite at right angles to the spar, um, gave, you the, gave you the correct angle. Uh, this is how we formed the skins. Um, the, the skin, I should, oh, I, sorry, I should have said that the, on the Aerocycle 2, this is still the canard, Aerocycle 2, we were able to buy skins that were only 3 millimetres thick, not 5 millimetres, 5.5 as previously. 5.5 is the thinnest they can make, but fortunately the suppliers of the styrofoam bought a great big sanding machine. So they were able to supply 3 millimetre styrofoam, which of course cost more than 5.5 millimetre styrofoam, but it was the thickness uh, we wanted. We went for... Um, oh, sorry, what have I done? No. Ah, I'm told this should go backwards. Yep. Um, the, uh, we went for the thinnest sort of um, glass cloth you can get, which is 25 gram glass, um, which is basically made for error models, I think, but we, we were able to buy great big sheets of it. Um, and we were putting it on at 45 degrees, so down the length of a, a skin, you'd typically need three. Uh, how we did this, and I'm not sure, I think that might be an experimental one, which was not actually being done quite how we did it ultimately. We had this, this great big aluminium sheet on a bit of, um, on a piece of MDF. Uh, the aluminium sheet was, um, was polished, and then we, we bonded the, um, the, trend, the, the glass cloth um, was epoxied to the aluminium, and the and the um, uh, styrofoam was put on top and then, and then vacuumed. And you can see here um, a vacuum uh, ridge around, around the edge. Um, that's how we did aerocycle number two. Um, when it came to number three, I haven't got pictures of it, um, but we realized the, 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 the polishing process was very laborious and we realized if we used a plastic sheet, I think it was a polycarbonate sheet, uh, we could actually, we didn't need to put any release agent on it at all. We just wiped the polycarbonate sheet down and, uh, and resined the, the, the glass cloth to that. And with that system, we were actually able to do about three at once, putting, putting each sheet on top of each other and then, and then vacuuming the whole lot down together. To actually form the skins, um, we had this, this former here, uh, and we, we put that in a water tank, which you'll see in the next uh, slide. Um, initially, um, we, we had these formers made out of plywood ribs, which was enormously um, time-consuming, and I realised in a sort of flash of inspiration there was actually no reason why we shouldn't use uh, styrofoam for that. So we bought these great big blocks of styrofoam and, uh, and just had the uh, plywood on the the two ends. Uh, if I go on to the next slide, this is actually forming the skin. Now, I mentioned to you that Aerocycle 1, we formed the skin around an aluminium tube with hair dryers and so on. It was enormously difficult, and it was enormously difficult to maintain the correct temperature on the whole skin. Very easy to do an experimental section about a metre long. I did it many times. But when you take a um, a three-metre section, 
very, 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 very difficult. The, the styrofoam basically at, I can't remember the exact figures, but it's something like 50, anything below 55 uh, centigrade, it cracks when you form it, and anything over about 75, it melts. So you have to, you have to be absolutely exact. It took me a bit of time to realise um, that what was needed was actually hot water, because styrofoam is a closed, closed cell, um, so the, it, it doesn't absorb water at all. So we had this great big water tank made, and that water tank is, is heated up with lots of elements in the bottom to, I, I can't remember exactly, but I think it's about 65 centigrade. Um, the skins that you've just seen were put on the former. There's the former there. There's the skins going on it. Uh, that then goes into the water tank. It takes three or four people to do the process. You need one person at each end of the former. You need one person controlling the, the skin, probably two people controlling the skin. And, uh, and literally, it's put in the water, and the, the, the former, the jig, is, is rotated around to, um, to form the skin. The two people on that job wear these great big thick gloves, and you can, you can put your hands straight into boiling water with them. And that then down there is the formed skin you can see wrapped around um, with the trailing edge pulled down and allowed to cool. It actually cools extremely quickly. The whole process, the, the forming, this has to be set up well, the forming process in the tank takes literally about 30 seconds, <laughs> for 30, 30 seconds or a minute, quite quick. How are we going? Yeah, the next slide is a few tests on trailing edges. I've got a trailing edge um, here that you might like to have a look at afterwards. Um, the trailing edges typically have two um, three-millimeter carbon toes, uh, top and bottom, uh, put on um, in, 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 in the flat and then mounted on, on the wing. This was experimenting with how to put the trailing edge on. Oh, dear, I've done that again. I meant to press the other one. Um, this was experimenting with putting the ribs onto the trailing edge. The trailing edge, again, there is a sample here, is a, is a four millimeter carbon fiber um, tube in there. Uh, that's actually a solid trailing edge. We actually ultimately went for two, two thin skins to save a bit of weight on that. Um, and we found that actually, um, with ribs so frequent, that the, that trailing edge was, was strong enough like that. So there was no, we, we had, get the right button, we had on Aerocycle 1, we had complicated gussets because to hold the trailing edge on. There's no gussets, whatever. It's just a blob of, of epoxy resin onto that rib, onto the trailing edge, and it seems to, uh, seems to do the trick. Um, right, so we nearly now got a set of bits to make a wing. Oh, what's happened to this? There we are. Um, all those uh, ribs that you saw in the, the previous picture, they will, these were all cut out um, on a laser cutter, as in fact all the wing ribs for this wing were cut out on a laser cutter. Um, and there's the, there's the jig. Now, the jig um, lent quite... And I'll show you one or two details in a minute. The jig lent a lot, of, a, a, a lot to the design of the um, Aerocycle 1 jig, the same sort of... Um, 12 millimeter um, formers 
MDF formers, uh, you just needed more of them because we needed one every single rib station, which was uh, 260 millimeter. Um, because of the difficulty of, of, of the join, and actually with mine, with, if you've got tubular spars, getting the mid-wing joint is actually quite easy because as, you know, as long as one tube fits into the other, the thing's going to go together. Getting the, the, this, this sort of form here accurate enough and accurate enough in the wing for the two halves to go together is actually very difficult. For this first wing, therefore, what I did was we put the two jigs together and we built the entire length of wing in one. Um, if we make some more, I would hope eventually to have um, jigging to avoid doing that because I'd like to see interchangeable panels but certainly this first aircraft, the panels are not interchangeable. Um, I've now got just one or two um, details of, of the jig. Um, there you see the MDF frame. This time, the, uh, this is actually, this one's at the tip, which is the reason why there's all that spare bit of jig there, but, because this is, the, this is the narrow taper here, but the skin, you can see the skin line going up to there, so at the, the root end, the, the skin would be right up to the top. Um, I've already mentioned, mentioned um, about how we put the ribs in, that we put the ribs in and then, then trimmed them afterwards. The other feature about this jig, and it's not desperately easy to see it in this picture, on Aerocycle 1, one of the difficulties is actually been getting the, the leading edge out of the jig because the leading edge comes round and is already tapering slightly and therefore the it's actually a mechanical lock. And on aerocycle number one, we had to, to force the, the MDF apart in order to get the wing out. I then realized on this one that it was much better just to hold the top of the, the top surface of the wing, uh, and the bottom surface was intentionally made with the MDF not touching the skin. But instead of that, there are these rods, and the rods are graduated and go into little sort of sockets. So at the leading edge, you've got a sort of three-eighths rod going back to a one-and-a-quarter-inch rod uh, coming further back. That meant you could pull all these rods out and the underside skin would be loose, which was great in terms of, of, of getting the spar in. It means you can actually stretch... Within, inside the jig, you can actually stretch the skin out to get things in. So there's a great boon compared to the... Uh, to the first aircraft. Um, what other features do you see? I've already told you about the, um, the carbon toes on the ribs, uh, and um, you've already seen the, the carbon toes on the, the spar. There are the spar caps, of course. Here's the, the Warren Goethe arrangement. That's at the tip. Here's at the root end. Now, the root end uh, has this um, structure here like this, um, to close the torsion box. And that is how, um, uh, you remember me mentioning earlier on, that we, we, we closed the torsion box after the main spar. And that's just a couple of general um, pictures of uh, how it was done. It was sort of, it was sort of in many ways, uh, done similarly to putting the toes on the, uh, the wing. 
except these ones were actually done flat, just a crisscross pattern, and then uh, weighed down. We didn't actually bother with the, uh, with the vacuum bag on that. Um, that all leads on to... Oh, I've done that one. There we are. That all leads on to the finished wing. So that's the finished wing of 002. Um... <coughs> It looks a bit complicated. Actually, it's amazing. These frames here, having, having got all the... Pro, they can be machined. It was about a day's work, a day's machining all them. It was actually terribly, terribly quick. A lot of programming, particularly since I got a rather old-fashioned system for um, uh, doing CAD, CAD programming. Uh, here we go. Uh, and so here's AeroCycle 2 being tried, um, and that... That came out at, um, oh gosh, if I get this right, because I, I got in a bit of a muddle as to where the, the rally number two was 2013, and that was at Sywell, and that's where we had this aircraft. I actually think this is probably at Lashen being tested there, um, um, possibly even after Sywell. Um, We built the fuselage on the same jig as, as, as Aerocycle number one. Um, what more can I say about it? We were still having troubles with the canard. We did get some flights, some hops into the air. We continued to have terrible trouble with the, uh, with the drive chain. You can actually see the drive chain here. Um, the chain's going up there, round this sprocket, and up to the propeller there. Um, bit more carbon in it. You can see the, 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 the canard boom is actually carbon fibre, not a lot else. Um, oh, I, did men I should have mentioned earlier about the big wheel. Tremendous problems with the big wheel because a uh, spoke wheel is not actually designed for landing sideways. Um, and we, we did quite often have to change, every, basically every time the aircraft landed sideways, we had to put a new wheel on. Um, so that was Sywell. And it was, um, yeah, it was a bit depressing because basically the same happened as happened the previous year, that we came away from Sywell and we hadn't given anyone any serious competition. Well, I was a bit fed up with this. I thought that <laughs> we, needed to, we needed to do something that would give a bit of competition. So I gave up on being quite so original. I reckoned I'd built a pretty good wing, but I reckoned the problem was the canard. Um, it would be fascinating still to get the canard right, but we didn't, and I just wanted to be certain we did something. So I phoned up, I phoned up uh, John McIntyre and said, John, I think the Airglow fuselage is the ultimate in fuselages for human-powered aircraft, or certainly the ultimate that we've got to at the moment. Do you mind if I copy the Airglow fuselage and put my wing that I've just described onto that fuselage. So that is exactly what I did. John was very, very helpful, supplied me with all the information. And, uh, and uh, there, there we are. And actually, John McIntyre very kindly has just done that drawing for me um, to show aerocycle number three. Uh, I didn't really have a complete uh, general arrangement of the aircraft before. It was all sort of bits and pieces on different drawings. Um, so, uh, so that's sort of quite new. I don't think, actually, John hasn't quite got the, the X-bracing right, so we need to sort that out. Um, here's my wing. Of course, this fillet in here 
was done because it suited the, uh, the canard design. Um, I, but I actually think that it might be quite good aerodynamically. I have to stress that I'm, more stre- I'm a stressman, not an aerodynamicist. I'd love an aerodynamicist to really get hold of this and be able to give me some, give me some good advice. Um, I like the idea of the, of, of the propeller on the boom. Um, John on Airglow used that. Mine is actually slightly further back uh, than John's, um, largely because we bought a piece of uh, carbon fibre and it was um, sort of six inches over length and I couldn't see much point in uh, cutting it down. Um, quite a close uh, clearance, as you see, to the ground, but interesting, we've never had a problem We've never had a problem. I thought we would, but we've never had a problem with this propeller touching the ground on takeoff. We've had lots of other problems, but, 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 but not that one. Um, what else can I say about it? The, the clever thing John did really was his, was his structure, and this is, this is pretty much a direct copy. Uh, John um, made his own carbon tubes on a mandrel, and uh, I don't know if you've ever heard John's description of trying to get his tubes off the mandrel. It was quite a difficult, long process. I found a, a firm that make carbon fibre tube for racing cars, and they were able to, uh, they were able to supply the carbon fibre tube at uh, a not, not a bad cost. Um, so, uh, so that, yeah, I think that's about all I need to say about that. So we had to build the fuselage. So we got the wing... Um, got the wing. Um, the impenage was pretty easy. I mean, that is that is a direct copy as well, so that didn't need to be designed. Um, we had to build the fuselage. My rule with the fuselage, I didn't actually do any stress calculations. My rule was no, no bit of carbon on the fuselage was allowed to be thicker than what it is on airglow. So that that's what kept my weight down. I said if it, if it did airglow, it would do us. So there's our fuselage in, in the jig. Um, I was a bit bothered, actually, about having a jig that held the fuselage on one side. I was persuaded to do that, um, but actually um, it, 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 does, it, it did work incredibly well. Um, here, the next picture is probably slightly better, shows the whole process. Um, here's a typical fuselage joint. I think I've got one here somewhere. Uh, that's, not, that's actually a wrong bit of carbon tube. Welcome to have a look at that. This is pre-preg uh, material. Uh, pre-preg patches. Um, typically about four patches to make a joint. Um, those patches would then be uh, wrapped in, in a film to stop adhesion and finally with um, shrink wrap tape. So here's the whole fuselage made up with all these pieces in place and the shrink wrap tape. Um, we then put a box on top and uh, heated the box up to, um, I can't remember what the temperature was now. It's a low temperature um, pre-preg, 60, 70, something like that, which is pretty easy just with a hot air gun and, uh, and a fan inside. We did have, I was actually really worried about this base um, warping under the heat. And I, I insisted that they put these, these little um, things here. You can see the telltales here. And I haven't got the picture, but they set up with a laser level. So while the thing was curing, they were able to, um, to check uh, the height of all these, these tubes to make sure we weren't getting the thing twisted. For the next one, we have 
we did start building a second fuselage, which has never been completed, uh, and that's up at the top on a much stronger jig on a trolley so that the thing can be uh, wheeled around. I've actually just off... I think Imperial College are quite interested in building a human-powered aircraft, and I may interest them in having that, because uh, if they talk to you, Bill, that, that's, that's how much of it's made, all, all the structural bit. Yeah. Um, so we had to fit the wings onto the, um, onto the fuselage. So there we go. This is aerocycle number three. Um, I've got this arrangement on the, main, the front main lugs um, in which this, this member here rocks. And the idea of that is that you can actually differentially alter the incidence of the two wings. So it's not wing warping, it's not ailerons. It's the whole wing twists. And that's done with a bar that is just above the pilot here. We've never actually tried it. But... <laughs> My idea was that if you want to go round, you, to keep the wings level, you've got to basically yaw these aircraft round. My aircraft, my idea was that you put in a bit of reverse, reverse uh, movement on the, uh, on the wings, and then you put in your rudder control and you, and you yaw round better. Um, I still plan, I still hope Mike, who's here in the audience, I still hope you try it one day, but we haven't been quite brave enough yet. Um, this, is the, uh, this is the rear lug. Um, I, I failed to have a picture of the top lug, but actually the top lugs up here uh, are just joined with a, a single member, and it actually means that our, our wing on Aerocycle 3, and uh, it's the same on Aerocycle 2, is actually a mechanism. The thing that holds the fuselage straight to the wings is the lift wire. Uh, and that is good because it makes it uh, very easy to uh, alter the dihedral. Uh, so there we are. That's Aerocycle flying the first time at... Um, that was at, at Cy... No, Lasham, 2014. Um, we had quite a high dihedral. And I think people know what happened. <laughs> a few seconds after that, we actually had a lift wire break. Uh, we don't know... I still haven't really fathomed it out in my mind as to how there was enough load on the lift wires to have a lift wire break. But um, it did show that the aircraft is pretty robust. Uh, so some good came out of it. We, we broke one of the propeller blades. Um, the pilot was fine. The, 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 the structure here well protected the pilot... Um, and he, uh, that was Clive Davidson doing that flight, uh, and he did subsequently fly Aerocycle 3, so his, his confidence in the aircraft hasn't... He, he flew it last year, so his confidence in the aircraft hasn't been, uh, hasn't been totally destroyed. It did mean that that flight, which sort of was its first flight, <laughs> there we are, that was it for the competition. There was quite a lot of repair work to do. Um, but we did have aerocycle number one. Of course, aerocycle number two didn't exist anymore because we got the wing off it, but we had aerocycle number one there as well. I intended to fly them both, so we pulled out aerocycle number one again and carried on the rest of the week with our sort of vague hops, trying to make something work and getting, getting all rather frustrated with it. Um, it's quite interesting, actually. I mean, I should have designed for this, but I didn't, fortuitously. 
these, these lugs that we've got, which are incidentally 8-millimetre eight, eight lugs, 8-millimetre steel, uh, in the ends of these um, spar caps, when the lift wire went, um, the 8-millimetre lugs failed in tension and there was no damage whatever to the spar. So that was, I was lucky there. If the spar had been damaged, that would have been a really, really, really difficult repair. Uh, oh, this is the next year. This is, um, so we got it all mended. We got to Lashen. We only went to Lashen in Lashen 2015 uh, with Aeros Cycle 3. We didn't take Aeros Cycle 1, as far as I remember rightly. Um, and uh, we had quite a good week. I think we were doing okay on points. I can't really remember. Uh, on the last day, or the last but one day, we had the gearbox fail. Um, I, I, I thought it was making funny... I thought it was a bit odd, actually, beforehand. I couldn't quite work out why it didn't sort of be running all that smoothly. But basically... Oh, oh damn, sorry. What, what's happened here? Oh. oh. Can we go back to 31? Is anyone in there? Can you get back to 31? Sorry, I keep pressing the wrong button. That's it. Thank you. Um, oh, the, the gearbox, yes, so the gearbox <coughs> failed. We um, um, did eventually uh, weld it up, but after lashing. Um, that was done by Gus, who's, who's here tonight. Um, that's about it for, um, for the flying. Um, I wanted to see um, Queen Mary... There were four students at Queen Mary College uh, who were keen to help, and I said, well, why not do some torsional tests on our wings? So they set up this rig here. Um, this rig here um, holds the lugs. This is actually aerocycle number one wing in here um, with, a, with a loading mechanism here, and you can see using a fulcrum here, because I wanted to see where we were on, on torsion on our wing. And... And because we were pretty convinced that we had a pretty stiff wing. And uh, these were the results that they produced. Um, and you can see this is deflection here, a torsional load here. And you can see this is aerocycle number one. This is the graph here. Uh, sorry, aerocycle number three, which is the same as two, the, the new wing we're now flying. This is two. This is two. In the middle here is somewhere is aerocycle number one, which was our original um, section. And by comparison, and this is no reflection on Bath University, but I happen to have a, the, the set of Bath University wings lying around, which was built with what I would call a conventional tubular spar, depending upon the tubular spar for torsional stiffness. Um, and that's where they are on that line there. And that, I feel... The fact that I got my torsional stiffness so much higher than, um, as it were, the competition, I feel is one of the reasons why the aerocycle number three is, is flying well. Because it actually means the wingtips are flying at the angle you think they're flying at, not at some other um, angle that um, the, the wing has taken up. They, they did graph it a second time, um, I've, I've yet to actually sort of check this. On this graph here, um, the, the lower, this is span versus, um, what is it, deflection um, at 10 newton metres of torque. 
So actually, the lower you are here, the stiffer it is. Here's number, aerocycle number three down here. This is the reading, this is the tip, and this I want, I've, I've yet to sort of really look into this, but the difference between there and there is that X-bracing. Because, rightly or wrongly, on that wing, I decided at the last minute to leave out the X-bracing for the last sort of three metres of wing, because I was wanting to save weight. And it looks as though... If this graph's right, it looks as though it makes a phenomenal difference to the torsional stiffness, and that's something I, I intend to look at. What are we doing now for, for, um, for the Icarus Cup this year? Well, we're working on ground equipment, because we want to use this aircraft to go in for the sporting competition. Aerocycle 3, at the moment, it takes probably six people two hours to rig, uh, which is pretty dreadful, and also it's sporting competition, you've got to be able to rig in half an hour, so all the effort at the moment is going into rigging aids, and we have the, we've made this trolley here, the fuselage goes on the trolley, the wings, the, the, the wing supports aren't here yet, they're made now, we've got wing supports on here, the wings are like on arms, and the arms come forward with the whole thing still on the trolley, and these arms land your wing up in exactly the right place. All you've got to do is pick up the route and put the pins in, and the wings are on. And I'm hoping that this is going to make all the difference. Um, this is a little thing that some students made for me, which is just a, a styrofoam box. And all the bits, all the bits, propellers, impenage, um, centre section, everything goes in this, this box, which is absolutely brilliant, because um, then the whole thing can go in the trailer. So there we are. We've got to get our rigging down to half an hour. Um, sorry, I have run over a bit, but it's not, hopefully not too bad. Oh, there we go. Uh, so there we are. That's the, the, the first slide again. That's Mike, who, Mike Trulove, who's here tonight, who won the Icarus Cup. We won the, obviously won the team prize uh, last summer, um, doing, his, um, uh, doing a left turn. Um, both we and Betterfly manage two sides of a triangle with a turn in between, um, but in both cases the pilots ran out of steam <laughs> before, before the next turn. Both actually aircraft landed on almost an identical place, if I remember rightly. Um, quite interesting, actually you see a bit of a, a, bit of a, um, a discontinuity at the wing joint there, and particularly on that side, and I didn't notice until we were de-rigging the aircraft at the end of the competition that actually we had a partial lug failure here. The, the lug had partially failed in bearing. And we worked out that it was due to ground, ground handling because we have, a, we have a trolley that we, that we wheel the thing around on and we have a sort of support that goes under the wing at this point. And it was clearly the dynamic loading of the aircraft being dragged across bumpy ground. So that's, um, that's uh, we, we have repaired the lugs now. It was a very, very difficult repair to do. But, um, so they had that. Uh, and that, that picture there uh, just sort of happened to pop up on my computer when I was um, putting all this together. I didn't know quite where it came from. But it's just a reminder to everybody that uh, we have to turn out terribly early in the morning, <laughs> which is not brilliant. And it's said that it's because the wind speed is very low. 
Actually, I think that turning up very early in the morning isn't an ideal time for flying because there's so much moisture around. You've got a sopping wet wing. You're carrying around loads of water. And all our best flights have actually been in the evening. And it's one of the real problems with with operating from an airfield. I mean, Cywell's a regular airfield... And they actually, Cywell were allowing us to fly in the evening because the airfield was officially closed at six o'clock. There were still microlights, though, flying around when we were trying to fly our human-powered aircraft. Lasham, um, they won't really ever commit to evening flying. Um, and I don't know how we're going to manage this, this year because they, they have gliders, and if the gliders want to fly, they won't let us fly. So it's a real problem. I mean, um, I've written down here, what we actually need is a 500-acre field dedicated to human-powered aircraft flying. Um, that's, that's it. Um, so what were my three new features that I talked about at the beginning? Well, uh, certainly the, the wing spar. I think there are probably two new features in the wing somewhere that I've described Maybe the, maybe the way the torsion is done and maybe the spar. The third thing actually is the controls. I, haven't, I didn't put any slides in on the controls. I couldn't do everything. But Aerocycle 3 is actually mechanical controls because I like mechanical things. I don't like electronic things. Um, and uh, it means the pilot has a, 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 a feel. Aerocycle 1 and 2, and it's fairly conventional on other aircraft, uh, tend to have electronic controls with, uh, with model servos actually moving the control surfaces. But I've got push rods on Aerocycle 3, and they're typically uh, quarter-inch carbon fibre tubing. Um, it's quite light. Um, we did put servos on as well, so that um, one of the advantages of servos is that you can actually uh, fly the aeroplane from the ground. So you can have somebody pedaling and somebody else flying the aircraft on the ground. And that has definitely been done with some of the experimental aircraft not allowed in the Icarus Cup. Um, but, but we haven't actually... You, you know, these, these servos are going on there and they go around with the aeroplane, but uh, they've never actually been connected. Um, Mike Trulove, who flies the aircraft in Electronic Wizard... He keeps asking me when we're gonna when we're gonna do it, but <laughs> I'm not sure. I'm putting off the day. So those are the three new features. I haven't really. I've mentioned one or two names. Uh, almost specifically, I haven't been mentioning names because so many people have helped with this project. I mean, it has been phenomenal. I've had um, one or two people who worked on it long term. Uh, I've got three or four pilots who at various different times have flown the aircraft, going right back to Aerocycle number one. Um, I've had a lot of university students. Typically, when we were building those wings and when we were setting up the fuselage for Aerocycle 3, uh, we would have, from the middle of May to sort of early July, to get all the things done that hadn't quite been done before. And there was usually a heck of a lot of them and I would get students in for their summer vacation. Um, I think the most we ever had was eight students, um, uh, six, I think, from Bath University, one from Bristol, one from Liverpool. Um, it was quite a lot of students to manage, I must admit. Um, that was my full-time job. Divided them all into pairs and gave them each, each bits of the aeroplane that was their, their responsibility. 
I mean, finishing that fuselage, we had one guy, we taught him how to use the lathe, and he spent seven, he never used a lathe before, he spent seven weeks machining solid from morning to evening, um, sort of providing a service for everybody else. I had a team from Manchester University on Aerocycle Number 1, but that, that was before it ever flew. I mean, for those students who actually came with Aerocycle 1 and 2, for them never to have really seen the aircraft fly, uh, there we are. It's, it's just how it happened. But, I mean, they were enormously... It was, it was great that they, they carried on. Terrific enthusiasm. And one or two members of the team are... are other members of the team are here tonight, which is... Uh, is great. So there we are. I've got a long list of what to do to make it better. <laughs> so we're not short of. I'm not going to go through my list of what to make it better. Uh, am I okay on time, Bill? Two more minutes. Two more minutes. Um, most of it, frankly, is about making the thing lighter. Uh, at the moment, it's somewhere around 36 kilos. Um, I discovered actually we had a problem with our scales, so I'm not exactly sure how much air. I bought some new scales now. I'm not exactly sure, but it's around that, around 36. Really, I need to get it down to 30 kilos. Um, and, and actually, quite a lot of it is in the fuselage. Um, the, the windscreen is quite big, and it's actually three quarters of a millimeter. Um, I don't know if it's polycarbonate or something. Airglow has half millimeter. But if I'd wanted half millimetre, I had to buy 20 sheets. And actually, it was pretty expensive, so we went for three-quarter. This, uh, this pod underneath is glass fibre. Brilliant if you have a crash for protecting the pilot, but actually a bit heavy. Um, and it would only... I mean, Bill made it. <laughs> um, it's as light as you could get a pod that size. What I mean is, I'm not convinced the pod needs to be that big. Um, and I need to think about that. Um, the propeller would be quite nice to get a bit of weight out of the propeller. Um, seat, there's not. A, I haven't shown you details of the seat. Seat's an aluminium frame. I have actually bought a carbon fibre, one of these sort of really fancy seats that some of the other teams use, um, that are are on recliner bikes. And discovered, having got it, that it's just as heavy as the aluminium tube. So it's down to to comfort. I won't go through all the other things. I don't actually think there's a lot we can do to make the, the, the wings lighter. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's just how it is. There we are. Okay. Um, questions? I'll, I'll, there are these bits and pieces um, up here. You're welcome to have a look at them. You're welcome to come and have a look at a bit of skin. Oh, that's, that's the bearing, because if you have the uh, propeller on the shaft, you need a great big bearing like that, which is machined down... Um, to, to, to try and lighten it. Um, that was done by Gus, who's here tonight. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's about it. So we can have some questions, if you like, if there's time. From across the globe. From the centre of aerospace. And now to you. Thank you for downloading. Visit www.aerosociety.com to download more from this series and other multimedia content from the Royal Aeronautical Society. If you enjoyed this content, please consider showing your support for the Society. Share a link to this presentation by email or on your favourite social networks. If you have an interest in aerospace, consider the professional and personal benefits of membership. Visit www.aerosociety.com 
This content is provided subject to our website and digital media terms of use. Please visit www.aerosociety.com for more information.